All right, good morning. So we're going to have a time of Q&A, and we did this a few months ago, and it was, I think, a really wonderful time just to hear from you some of the questions that are on your heart, and then for us as leaders in the group to be able to respond to that. Uh, Pastor Harry is away today. He, he knows that we're doing a Q&A in his absence, so this isn't something that we're, we only do when he's gone. It's just that he wasn't <laughs> able to be here today. And so as Mark Tatlock and Han Cho and I were talking about what we could do, we thought another Q&A would be just a, a great use of our time. And so I've got a question to kind of get us started, uh, and then we'll take questions from all of you. We also have on our panel Nathan Garrett, who's one of our Bible study leaders. Uh, the last time, yes, thank you. Give it up for Nathan. Uh, the last time we did this, we had the opportunity to have Stan as part of our panel, and uh, today Nathan's part of our panel because we want you to get to know some of your Bible study leaders, and so this is a wonderful way for us to do that. So. I'm going to start with a question actually for you, Nathan, and I'll sit down here. But I'd love for you to tell the group a little bit about yourself, about your family, what you do, and also how you're engaged in ministry here in Cornerstone. So good morning, everybody. My name is Nathan Garrett. Uh, I lead the Sun Valley Study, which is mostly that kind of clump over here. Yeah, there we go. There are a couple of hands in there. Uh, so I'm a computer professor. So if you want a question about Greek, this is the Nathan you want. If you want a question about programming languages, this is the Nathan that you want. So all the questions you have today about how to connect your iPhone and things like that, I'm here for you, ready to go. Be careful, Nathan. Oh, I know. Go to my door. So my wife is over there. Corey wants to wave. Uh, so we've been at Grace here for about 15 years or so and part of Cornerstone. So we just love this group and love the Bible study and the connections that we get here. We've got four kids from 12 all the way down to five. And currently homeschool the PSP group that meets here on campus. That's pretty much me. I think I covered everything. All right. I love it. So I want to start with a question for Mark and Han. And uh, again, we're going to take questions from all of you. So if you have questions that you want to ask, we'll, we'll do that in just a moment. But one of the things that's really important to us as elders and leaders in this group is to make sure that, I mean, in keeping with what Pastor Harry has been preaching through, that we're making truth accessible so that we as believers are doers of the word and not hearers only. And so thinking about the book of James and the series on James, James 1 with, starts out about trials and then temptation and then being doers of the word and then into James chapter 2 with the prohibitions regarding partiality. I wanted to ask you, Mark, and Han as our elders, what are some ways that or maybe aspects of the series that Pastor Harry has been going through that have stood out to you in terms of practical application for the Christian life. Any, any thoughts on that? The first thing that comes to mind is something that Harry did emphasize uh, the last two weeks. When you step back and look at what God's doing in the life of a believer, um, the fundamental thing that he's doing is he's shaping us into the image of Christ. So when it comes to living out the Christian life practically, whether that's demonstrating mercy for widows and orphans, if it's not showing partiality, if it's demonstrating kindness and forgiveness, as he talked about uh, recently, please understand, 
our, our responsibility in life is to simply try to follow the example of Christ, to reflect his character in all that we do. That's the standard. Um, and so it's easy to look at all the admonitions, uh, all the instructions in Scripture, and uh, I think all of us have heard, you know, the idea of the Christian life isn't just about duty, but it's very easy to get locked into that idea that I'm not good enough, I just have to keep working harder to do all these things. Instead of looking to Christ and knowing Him and seeing more clearly from the Word who Christ is and how He loved us and how He lived uh, His life towards others, that's the standard. Now you want to talk about partiality. How did Christ see people? Or how does God see people? Uh, how does God demonstrate justice? How does God demonstrate mercy and compassion? And so uh, I think for me, and we were talking about this a little bit Friday at our leaders meeting, is looking through all the duties and tasks and responsibilities of the Christian life to Christ himself, knowing him in such a way that that informs your thinking about your relationships and, and everything else. And so um, to me, that's one of the kind of the overreaching or overarching ideas that we keep coming back to. And, uh, you know, when Harry took us to Matthew 18 and talked about how do you forgive somebody else, you forgive them just as we've been forgiven. That's the standard. Um, I call it the just as principle. It's just as Christ. And, and so you do fall short. I fall far short. Okay? Uh, and you might get discouraged by that, but I also want to remind you that the promise in Scripture is that God's going to complete that work. He will bring us to a place where the flesh is going to be done away with, that new creation is going to be fully realized. We'll get a new body. Uh, scripture calls that uh, glorification. Okay, So yes, you do fall short. So you can wallow in that, or you can keep looking to Christ, be encouraged by who he is, his promises, and uh, claim that future hope of what he's going to accomplish in us. Um, and so I made one last thought, but don't let the idea of progressive sanctification become an excuse not to excel still more. In, in pursuing Christ and living like Christ today. You know, I just took a moment to just kind of skim through the first chapter and a half, which is primarily what Harry's covered. And, uh, you know, just as I've been reflecting on this question and even on reflecting on our teaching time, uh, you know, it's so interesting because James is billed as such a practical book full of doing. But if you just think about it and think about the themes that Harry has preached on, just so much, it's just all from the heart, Right. Joy in trials, humility, you know, putting off your, you, you know, just do not be angry, do not be quick to anger, uh, you know, just even the hard attitude toward uh, how you look upon other people uh, in terms of partiality. And all of these things are heart attitudes and how that's the most important thing. It is the inside of the cup that matters, and, and much more so than the outside of the cup. And then when your inside of the cup is truly changed and regenerated and in a place of, of love and the fruit of the spirit, then outwardly those things will all manifest so strongly. And uh, to me, that's, that just comes out so, so strongly in this book and in Harry's preaching. And, you know, I even think about this idea of partiality and, you know, how, how God really hates that. And, and I just always go back to this story about uh, there was a missionary, uh, John Piper tells a story, there's a missionary 
uh, his name was Warren, I believe, and, and he was in the 60s and 70s a missionary to Pakistan. And he had gotten a question in some public forum about, well, you know, Warren, what would you do if your daughter decides to marry a Pakistani? Like it was some horrifying concept to the questioner. And Warren responded firmly and boldly and from the word of God that, look, far better that it be a Pakistani believer than a godless white American. And it was just, it, again, it's just a heart question. And, and I just thought that that was so powerful. And it's indicative of, you know, even as we're talking about partiality right now, on uh, just the importance of the inner heart and you know, h- hatred lurks in everyone's heart and how we need to repent of that and conform our outside behavior with the regenerated inner man that uh, we have been given by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, thank you both. The emphasis on progressive sanctification and the emphasis on the heart that has been renewed that is where the motivation for holy living comes from. You know, the book of James, our study in it has been so incredibly rich. One verse from chapter one that has been particularly meaningful for me is verse five, where James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. And You know, when we think about the trials, the temptations of life, which is what chapter one focuses on, or even relationships, both inside the church and outside of it, which is what chapter two starts to talk about, I find myself often needing wisdom. And I find such comfort in that verse in verse five that God promises to give wisdom to those who ask in faith. And even as, not just as a Christian, but as a parent, as a husband, you say, wow, Lord, there are times when I need wisdom with my kids, for example. Uh, Verse 5 is such a a wonderful promise, uh, a prayer request that God promises to answer to those who ask in faith. So, a wonderful study from the book of James, but let's transition now to questions from you guys. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you ask the question, then I'm going to repeat the question so that we so that everyone is able to hear it, and uh, then our panel will answer it. So right here, go ahead. Okay, so that's a great question. The question is, especially in light of some high-profile Christian, quote-unquote, celebrities who have publicly denounced their faith and walked away from it, what we would call apostasy. If somebody claimed to be a Christian and then later walks away from the faith 
and denounces Christianity and says, I want nothing to do with that anymore. Uh, were they really saved to begin with? And what should we think about them? So. Well, I mean, I look at First John 2 is really, I think, the key verses on this topic. And um, you, you look at verses 18 and 19 and 20. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And Stephen, I think that this... um, passage really illustrates what you're talking about in terms of even those times when you had felt that you had kind of moved away, that there was this prompting from the Holy Spirit that always brought you back. And I think that that's, you know, genuine believers who have the Spirit, I think that they will be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's a promise from the Scriptures. It's an incredible promise when you think about it from Romans 8, that we are being conformed into the image of our Savior. And you know, I've heard it likened to a yo-yo walking upstairs. There may be dips and valleys in your walk, but the overall trajectory as you look at it over the longer course of time is upward, is progressive sanctification as we've talked about. And you see some of these prominent people who kind of make these bold declarations of apostasy, and, and it grieves me because it just demonstrates that uh, it does make me... I don't, I don't, and again, I pray that some of them would return in the future, but... When you make a bold proclamation like that, that's, that's really uh, trampling on the name of Christ in a, in a very public way, and it, it's really grievous to me when I see that. Yeah, just to add to that, and Han, I think that's a great answer. So the short answer to your question is if somebody professes to be a Christian— and then later walks away from Christ and denies the faith, they demonstrate that their profession was a false profession. They were never truly saved. They are like the first three soils in the parable of the soils that Jesus tells, where you have some seed that falls on the road and is immediately snatched away by the birds, and then you have soil that falls in the thorns and is choked out by the world. You have soil that falls on shallow ground, and it sprouts up, but then it dies quickly. Only the good soil is representative of true believers. So one of the characteristics of a true believer is that a true believer will persevere to the end. Uh, We call this the perseverance of the saints, and it is, from God's perspective, it's the reality that those whom he saves, he will save all the way to the end. He who began a good work in you, he will complete it. That's Philippians 1. And even the promise of Romans 8, that those whom he elected in the past, he will justify and he will glorify. So those whom God has truly saved, he saves to the end. From a human perspective, what that looks like is those who are true believers persevere to death as believers. So those who abandon the faith demonstrate that they were never truly saved to begin with, no matter what they may have professed. And I think the parable of the soils is really helpful in explaining how that can be, because it looks, it looks like there's a response, 
but that response is not genuine because they're not the good soil. And, of course, the soils there represent the heart. You know, that's excellent. And I also would be curious, uh, I know Nathan works at a secular uh, college, and I would be curious, I don't doubt that you've seen this kind of phenomenon from time to time among students who may come from a Christian background. And what does that look like from your perspective, just to see some of them kind of assaulted, if you will, by, uh, you know, the world? So I work at Woodbury University, which is a small college um, in Burbank. And if you want to think like masters, opposite. <laughs> uh, it's not a Christian institution. There's a handful of Christians on campus that I, that I know of, a handful of students that I've met over the years. Um, so I, I don't see as much in that context. I think actually when I went to a school called Laternal University, which is very much like masters out in Texas, um, and seeing young Christians go out away from their parents for the first time and have a chance to make choices was really interesting from that kind of perspective. And you really see at that point, like, well, are they truly doing this from their heart or are they doing it because of the circumstances? And so I think coming back to the, like, falling away temporarily and kind of coming back, in the church discipline process, the goal is restoration, right? I mean, if someone falls away, it's better for them to fall away and then to know where their true state is and then to go after them and try and bring them in as an unbeliever to be converted. So I think there, even though I see students who've kind of fallen away, some of them have returned. And I think there's, there's hope there in that process. All right, great question. And uh, I'm sure we could spend more time on that, but let's go on to another question. Mark, would you uh, select somebody from that side of the room? Hey, Jake, what's your question? Okay, so that's a great question, Jacob. Thank you. Um, it's times like this, I'm glad that there's seminary. Uh, <laughs> so the question is, what happens to Jesus' spirit between the cross and the resurrection? I'm going to answer that question in um, what I hope is a clear but also safe way, because not everyone on our pastoral staff agrees with regard to the answer to that question. So that's why I paused when I heard your question, because I'm thinking through the implications of how to answer it. Um, so there are, there are two primary views. Uh, one view is that Christ descended into hell and proclaimed victory in hell there. And then uh, this is based on an interpretation not only of 1 Peter 3, 18 and following, but also Ephesians chapter 4, and that he proclaimed victory. And then after proclaiming victory, um, ascended, uh, or uh, after proclaiming victory, uh, then um, I believe this view is that he then was in paradise in keeping with what he told the thief on the cross. Uh, 
The other view is that Christ did not descend into hell, but only went, his spirit was in paradise, as he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, the differing views on 1 Peter 3.18 have to do, and following, have to do with whether or not the spirit of Christ there refers specifically to Jesus' spirit after the crucifixion, or whether it refers to the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah, because the question is whether or not um, what Peter's talking about there is people who were alive in the days of Noah who heard the preaching of Noah through the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, or whether people who had lived before the flood but were now dead and in hell heard Christ proclaim victory when he visited them in hell to proclaim victory before going to paradise as he promised the thief on the cross. So both views would agree that when Christ said, today you will be with me in paradise, that Christ was in paradise with the thief on the cross as he promised. One view has Jesus visiting hell before going there. The other view does not. And I'm going to leave it at that. And you can check the MacArthur Study Bible notes if you want Pastor John's view. Good question. All right, yep, in the back there. All right, so the question has to do with day trading and gambling. Christians view gambling as something that we should not do. Does day trading with the stock market, does that fit that same category? And if not, why is it different? And on this, I'm going to defer to my distinguished panelists. <laughs> well, I'm just excited there is an accounting-related business question being raised at Cornerstone this morning. This is pretty cool. My, my finance friends would say that trading on the stock market um, as an individual is usually a bad financial investment that usually ends up losing. So in terms of like a wisdom perspective, I think that there's definitely wisdom in listening to people who have expertise and that say, don't do that. Um, from a personal perspective, like if you've got a hobby, like there's different hobbies people have. So if there's, I think that there's, there's Christian freedom to play with a responsible degree of money. Um, but in a larger sense, I think that if you're playing with your family's financial retirement, that's a different question. I'll probably edge on the other side of the wisdom response. So I can recommend, this is a great resource uh, I really enjoy uh, and have recommended before on this topic of gambling. And uh, one of our pastors here, Phil Johnson, has written a six or seven part series that's available. If you Google, Phil Johnson is gambling sin. Uh, the, the series should come up. There's also a sermon on it or a couple of sermons on it. And, you know, the thing that it helps you do is it processes motivation. We're talking about the heart, right? And it just talks a little bit about just some of the heart motivations that may go into gambling. And uh, I, I found it to be a very helpful resource, uh, you know, whether you uh, decide you ultimately agree with it or not at the end. I think it will help you walk through the biblical issues. So I do recommend that resource on this topic generally of gambling. But David, to answer, to address your question more specifically, I do think that there is a difference between gambling and investment. And you even see, uh, you know, really investment gets to the concept of stewardship. And if you look at Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, that's talking about the parable of the talents. 
and uh, basically this is where the master assigns a certain number of talents to his slaves, and he tells them, go and invest, and, and the slaves then go and, and, and work with these talents, and they invest with these talents to gain more talents. And, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, obviously if you're just kind of willy-nilly, recklessly dispersing money in various investments and you don't really know anything about them, you know, there may not be much difference from gambling in that situation because there's no application of skill or stewardship. It becomes almost like a luck-based thing. But I do think that if you are trying to invest wisely, you're, you're looking into the concepts, even, you know, to the point that Nathan raised, uh, it, you know, there are certain index funds that just follow the state of the economy, like the S&P 500, an index fund. It's very much you're really at that point investing on the American economy as a whole in a broad basis rather than kind of individual stock picking, which can be a lot more tricky and can indeed uh, you know, lead to uh, not so good results. Um, I also really appreciate there's a verse in Ecclesiastes, uh, and I think it's Ecclesiastes 10 or 11. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go find it quickly, uh, summon it to mind, but um, it basically talks about dividing your it talks about investment and dividing your treasure to six and seven parts. And this really talks about the virtue of diversification as an investment strategy, that you should not put all of your eggs in one basket to use a colloquialism. So that would be another one. And uh, I think I'll pause there and I'll try to find that verse and come back to it. Han, would you find our next questioner? Uh, Yes, and actually I just found it. It is Ecclesiastes 11. Uh, verses 1 and 2, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. So that's a strong scriptural uh, principle for this concept of investment diversification. All right, another question. Yes. Okay, the term dispensation, dispensational, what do those terms mean and kind of what are the primary factors that we're talking about when someone like Pastor John uses that term? So dispensationalism refers to a way of viewing all of Scripture, the biblical story. A dispensation, another term for that would be an age or an economy, And it's the idea that in human history, in redemptive history, there are different ages in which God has uh, worked in different ways with his people. So there would be, just for an example, we might say that the period of time between Adam and the time of the flood, we might say, was an age. We might call it the the pre-flood age. And then from the flood all the way to perhaps Moses, we might identify as, a, as an age. And then certainly from Moses to Jesus, we have the nation of Israel and God's working with his people through the law that he gives to Moses. And then from Jesus all the way, from Jesus' first coming all the way to Jesus' second coming, we call that the church age. And then we look forward to a period of time when God will work with Israel in the future call that the millennial kingdom. That's the millennial age. And then we have the eternal state. So these different ages are dispensations. And so when we say we're dispensational, a dispensationalist is one who recognizes that God works 
with, in different ways with his people at different periods of time in redemptive history. The two key distinguishing marks of dispensationalism would be, number one, a consistent, literal hermeneutic. So when we approach Scripture, we take it at face value, meaning that we recognize all the parts of speech and everything else, but we take it at face value. And so a consistent literal hermeneutic or a consistent normal interpretation means that when we get to prophecies that talk about a future for Israel, we're going to take those prophecies at face value. And then the second distinguishing mark is that we believe there's a difference between national Israel and the church, and that God has a specific future for national Israel that's different than the future that he has for the church. In specific, the millennial kingdom is focused on Israel, though there will also be Gentile nations who are saved during that time, and that's different or distinguished from the church age. When Dr. MacArthur, when Pastor John says that he is a leaky dispensationalist, what he means by that is that the classic dispensational view had seven very strict dispensations that it identified. And Dr. MacArthur would say, well, I don't know that we can be quite that specific. And so he would say, I generally recognize different ages in the Bible, and these two things, a consistent literal hermeneutic and a distinction between Israel and the church and a future for national Israel, I believe in those things. So insofar as those things are consistent with dispensationalism, he is a dispensationalist. He would identify himself that way. And, and, but I think that leaky dispensationalist comment is important because it is also meant, uh, as I understand it, as a distinguisher from uh, the original iteration of Schofield dispensationalism, which in addition to the kind of strict, kind of rigid seven dispensations that Nathan mentioned, it, it really has some other kind of really quirky aspects that we would not agree with for sure. And, and so really, um, there are some people who I think unfairly try to paint Pastor John as a Schofield dispensationalist, and that's just not the case, uh, you know, in the sense that, uh, again, they're, they're, it's easy to soundbite these kind of, uh, you know, original dispensational views and say, oh, well, the, he believes this, but that's not the case if you actually read what he has taught. Um, but the other thing that I've also, just on this concept of dispensationalism, uh, it's an important point that I think is really powerful. It's this notion that God's promises and his covenants to Israel are, are true, and, and they remain in force. And if you look at Genesis 15, uh, you know, that um, at the end of Genesis 15, starting in verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. And this promise is a unilateral promise. It's a, it's a covenant that God makes. It doesn't depend on the faithfulness of man. God is making this promise and this covenant himself. And all of the Israelites through the entire Old Testament understood this to mean this is a promise to us as Israel. And so many people who do not hold to a dispensational view have to then kind of contort this into something, oh, well, the church has actually come in and, and you know, so, and again, I think that some people would, would object to this terminology of replacement theology or that they have replaced Israel. But however they kind of try to allegorize it or spiritualize it, 
that the church is somehow, this is referring to the church now, to have that kind of thinking would require that this entire generation, uh, you, know, two, you know, 2,000 years of Israelites, uh, that they would be, have been deceived, if, if you will. And uh, it, that's just not the case. We believe that this is a true unilateral covenant that God has made to the people of Israel and that God has a plan and a future for the nation of Israel. And I think that is, in large part, why we who hold to a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic uh, would follow and say that this, this is correct. Nathan, is there anything that you want to correct in what I've just said? Because, uh, you know, I... uh, No, that was great. I'm going to let Nathan choose our next questioner. Someone in the, I see someone in the back over there. Yeah, right there. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm just going to repeat the question, Mark. First uh, Corinthians 13:10. The question has to do with the perfect. What is the perfect in First Corinthians 13:10? When the perfect comes, the partial shall be done away. Yeah, just to read the context there. Go back to verse eight. It says, "Love never fails." But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Okay? So just placing it in its context, uh, we believe we're talking about ultimately the completion of the canon that's going to provide God's complete revelation here. And so speaking back into the expression of these uh, particularly gifts, prophesying tongues and knowledge and so forth. And so looking at this, uh, our confidence is the canon has been brought to completion. This is God's revelation to us. And so you're really getting into a a broader discussion about the cessation of gifts and whether those continue today for God's people. So that would be kind of my short answer to that. It's a good question. Anyone's welcome to add to it. If you're looking for a, a good resource on not just that chapter, but on the broader topic of the cessation of the miraculous gifts. A couple books that I would recommend to you, obviously the Strange Fire book that Pastor John wrote a number of years ago. And then there's another book called Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit. It's written by Thomas Edgar. It's not in print, um, but it is available (laughs) through Google Play as an e-book for $10. I'm telling you that because if you go to look for it and you try and buy an out-of-print version, it's going to be like 100 bucks. It's worth 100 bucks, but I wouldn't want you to pay that. So you can get the ebook version of it for $10 through Google. Thomas Edgar, Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit, and then John MacArthur, Strange Fire. I think both of those would be a helpful resource on that particular question. Okay. Um, Mark, can you pick our next questioner? See how I'm delegating the picking so I don't get blamed if I leave someone out? Mark, please.
Okay. Um, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I'm just going to abbreviate the question to the real heart of it, and that is, is suicide the unforgivable or unpardonable sin? Okay. Um, is it an unforgivable sin? Maybe not the unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about, but is it an unforgivable sin? Well, Art, I really appreciate that question because I think it's one we've grappled with over the ages. And if you look even in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it, uh, it tells a little brief vignette of a tale of two Christian women. I, I don't know um, if the details or remember the specifics or their names, but these two Christian women, uh, basically, they were about to be taken by non-believers and subjected to a horrible fate. But rather than have that happen, they, they flung themselves into a river. And, uh, and died. And ultimately, um, you know, I, I think that there are certain cases where a believer may do things like that or, or certainly even entrust themselves that the Lord would save uh, even. And uh, if that doesn't happen and the Lord has a different plan, then uh, so be it, if you will. That would be one type of situation. But even the, in a situation aside from that, I think one of the reasons that I've been so appreciative of just this church and even the teachings uh, that um, have come from Pastor John and, and even just a Protestant generally view of this, uh, it, it, is a, it is a Catholic position, a Roman Catholic position, that typically if you commit suicide, you've, you've committed a, an effectively unpardonable sin. You, you haven't, you know, that, you, that would uh, damn you or doom you. But uh, I'm not aware of that similar doctrine in the development of Protestant uh, theology or even original kind of um, apostolic uh, theology in, in the sense that, look, there are always going to be valleys in the life of a Christian and, and trials. And it may be that in our flesh, in our weakness, uh, there may be a succumbing to that type of, of depression even. And certainly we would call it a sin. Uh, any, the taking of a life of that would be a sin. The, the giving in to despair would be a sin. But to a person, look, we, we all sin every single day, every single hour. And, you know, ultimately the question is, did that individual place their trust and hope in the work of Jesus Christ rather than his own work? And so I really, I do believe that uh, there is a comfort and, and, uh, and a hope for even those who are in such a valley uh, that they might take their own life. I think that view also assumes you can't be forgiven unless you ask for repentance. Right, and that's we know that's not true, right? I mean, there's sins we've committed that we don't even realize we've done, but God, when He saved us, paid for all of our sins, beginning to end, and so it's complete at that moment. It doesn't depend upon us being perfectly aware of our own sins or being able at the last moment be like, "And forgive me, and I die." Right? I think we can have faith in that. Yeah, I think the Scripture only articulates one unpardonable yes. sin, and that is to reject Jesus Christ. Um, the Pharisees were in danger of doing that because they had full awareness of his miraculous power, and they were attributing that power to Satan rather than recognizing rightly that Jesus is God. And Jesus was warning them that they were committing an unpardonable sin, which is to reject Jesus Christ. So we would not see suicide as, as horrible and as tragic as it is and as selfish an act as it is, we would not see it as an unpardonable sin 
because the Bible doesn't describe it that way. The Bible only articulates one unpardonable sin, and that is to reject Jesus. Good question. Okay. Um, let's see. Right here in the front. All right, so that's a great question. The question is, and this will have to be our last question today because we're running out of time, but uh, the question is there's good terms like the term fundamentalist or the term evangelical that get hijacked by bad theology or get associated with negative connotations. And the question is, is it better to try and rescue terms that are getting (laughs) redefined by the culture or is it better to just abandon the terms and create brand new terms? Any thoughts on that? My mic's not working here. Uh, just an initial response. Uh, I share your same interest, uh, probably Nathan even more so in the sense, uh, if you have a value on church history, uh, there's those terms were fought for. You talk about the term fundamentalist, and when that came to be coined in the early 1900s by R.A. Torrey, and he authored a series called The Fundamentals, and it came to define the distinction between those who still held to a high view of Scripture inerrancy, our view of interpretation of the Scriptures, against what was happening as far as liberalism creeping into uh, North American seminaries from Europe, and then being pushed out uh, into local churches and and so forth, and it eventually affected mainline denominationalism. So there was a battle for the truth that that term came to characterize that people could rally around and say, we agree with these fundamentals. These define who we are. Uh, Sadly, those terms in our day and age, like evangelical, have been uh, so broadly applied that people don't hold to those same... When they say I'm a fundamentalist and they don't even know what the fundamentals are that they hold to, they're corrupting the term in a sense. So in a practical way, if the term ceases to have the same meaning, and language is always changing, you either do what you say, you go back and you redefine fundamentals, you, you plant your flag in the ground, you say this is who we are and this is what we stand for and call out everybody who uses the term and doesn't use it in accord with that historic definition. That's not wrong to do, but at some point, uh, terms that have been so misappropriated where it's like Christian, everybody says you're a Christian. If you look at statistics and global missions, you know, you can't ask the question, who's a Christian? Well, in a big picture sense, a Christian versus a Muslim versus a Buddhist, yes, but when you look at the definition of Christian, it includes Catholics and every brand of evangelicals and charismatics and everything. So it ceases to be a useful term in that context, because the purpose of language is communication. If there's not clarity, then you don't know what you're talking about. Um, 
Also, it drags everybody else who's identified with that term into the popular definition of that term and then adds greater confusion. So you either have to uh, apply some kind of, of adjective or, or adverb that more tightly defines what kind of fundamentalist are you, or re-educate people, or you have to abandon the term for the sake of just... And that's why you notice our pastor, if you look at his entire ministry, what he says is we want to be biblical. Just be biblical. And it drives everybody back to, well, what does God say in the Word? And I think that's been the most helpful thing, you know, evangelical or not, are you biblical? Fundamentalist or not, are you biblical in what you mean? So that would be my initial response. And, and I would just say, I think it's important uh, that we not be too dogmatic about this issue because, you know, we have to be careful. We're warned in First and Second Timothy about to avoid kind of worldly controversies or wrangling over words, quarreling over words sometimes. And I think that it's important that, uh, you know, we just not you know, I think there's some liberty and stewardship in terms of how we prioritize certain fights and certain things. And But we are called in Scripture to be careful and to stray, stray away from quarreling over words, if you will, in that sense. All right. Well, thank you. I think we've exhausted our time, though I don't think we've exhausted all the questions. So we'll have to do this again. It's a lot of fun. And Certainly, thank you to all of our panelists, to Mark and to Han, but to Nathan, thank you very much for uh, being our guest panelist today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Nathan to close us in a word of prayer, and then we'll be done for today. Lord, I thank you for this morning that we can meet together here as a fellowship of believers. Please help for us to take the, the lessons that we learn from the leadership and the church here and the, the pastors and you're coming from your word and apply them to our hearts. In your name, amen.